Welcome to the Monica Klein Show, and I am your host, Monica Leal Klein. I am so happy to be back with you guys, and I have got probably a two to three part series on communities and schools, and really talking about communities and schools means that I will also be talking about whole school, whole community, whole child. And I believe that if you've been following my podcast, you have heard about that CDC program from me, whole school, whole community, whole child. You've, uh, and if you've watched the mind polluters, you also heard me talk about that program in that film. If you have not watched the mind polluters, I highly recommend that you do that. Go to themindpolluters.com and stream the film. Now, when you stream that film, do not have children around in the house because this film gives you an overall view of what is going on in our public school system with regard to comprehensive sex education, teaching our children that gender is not binary, uh, but that gender is fluid, uh, LGBT, all kinds of LGBTQ issues or topics, social emotional learning, the uh, illegal assessments and surveying of our children and data mining of our children through public schools. Um, and you're, it's just a great overview. And it has solutions in the film as well that you can use. And um, it gives you so many resources that you're able to discern and recognize if that is happening in your community. So I highly recommend that you watch that film, uh, themindpolluters.com. So, um, so the reason I bring up the whole school, whole community, whole child is I've been talking about it for some years now. And it's a program through the CDC, and it's really their vision of what they want to see public schools looking like in the future. And in the film, The Mind Polluters, my conclusion about the whole school, whole community, whole child program is that it's the complete institutionalization of our children that's meant to diminish or even get rid of the family. It's the Hillary Clinton, it takes a village to raise a child. Um, now, I do believe that many families use their friends and their community um, to help with child, child rearing. I do see that, but that's us choosing that. And we're choosing our friends and our family that have similar values. But when we have government schools that are teaching our children all kinds of doctrine and ideology that we do not agree on, that is not the village that I want teaching my child. So we actually have to be pretty picky about whether we want a village or not. My parents were not really into the whole village mentality at all. I think that's why I'm such a uh, great advocate for family. My mother, I remember her saying, you know, that she disciplined us the way that she did. She had high expectations for us. Why? Because she did not want anyone outside of our home raising her children. And so she took it as a her responsibility given to her by God to raise us. And she was going to do the best job she could to create and to, I mean, to raise up children who would become responsible, hardworking adults. And so um, I hope I met her expectations. <laughs> but anyway, I did learn a lot from my mom and dad about that. Uh, very family centered. They did not believe that the government should help them in raising their children or feeding their children. Uh, and we were a family in poverty. My father had cancer majority of my life. Both of my parents had um, actually dropped out in the eighth grade. So they were not considered, they were not educated. Although I always um, 
observe them. They, they were incredibly intelligent, very well read, even if they didn't graduate from high school. So, um, so regardless of our poverty, my parents still took their responsibility as husband, wife, mother, and father uh, very seriously. And they were the leaders of, of, of their households and the leaders and the stewards of their children. So that's why I am such an advocate for family because it was modeled very well for me. But um, so my point though, with the whole community, whole school, whole child approach is that on the surface, it seems very helpful, especially for vulnerable families. And I, not only do I know what that looks like and feels like to be part of a vulnerable family. I myself was a single mom for nine years. And so I know what it's like to work full time uh, and to not have babysitters or, you know, to struggle financially or whatever all the different issues are. Um, but so the, this program seems to have these solutions for families but what really what it's doing, it's diminishing the family. It's taking away responsibility from the parents. And now the government is taking responsibility. Um, now we have the children learning the values that are being taught in the school rather than the values in the home. And there's more to it than that. When you look at this program on the CDC, you'll see that they want to provide mental health services to just school-wide to all the children. They want to provide a general, a general practitioner, reproductive health, a dentist. They show you in the virtual school that they have a room with all the medical records of the children. So it's not academic records now, it's medical records. Um, you know, so it's very revealing to understand what's happening in our schools today when you see this program. Now, when I started talking about this program, I saw, you know, that it was being implemented in various districts in the sense that there were school-based health clinics, uh, starting to see the social emotional learning coming in, mindfulness teachings were coming in. But I was also seeing that teachers were very burdened by this. Many teachers we're saying, we don't want to be counselors. We don't want to do mindfulness. We just want to teach academics. That's the profession that we chose. And we'd like to just teach, please. Um, and so this is where I think communities and schools has come in. They have been around for, I believe, over 45 years. Uh, they primarily were really working towards making sure that children stayed in school, that they did not drop out, but that they could help children who were in vulnerable situations to help them with their basic needs, come alongside them uh, and, and, and their families and help them uh, academically and in other ways to ensure that they would succeed in school and graduate from high school and hopefully move on to a job or to higher learning. And I think that really sounds great. Uh, but what communities and schools also does is that they bring in other speakers and other programs that some families may not agree with. And so I want to go back to talking about what is your, what are your foundational truths um, that you stand on as a family? What's your foundation? What's your doctrine? Um, and that is important uh, because it, it really, when you know what your standards are, when you know what values you have as a family, what expectations you have for behavior, um, then it, it that's what will be taught to your children. And that's what you model to your children. That's the expectations. It just serves as a guide for you. Well, 
nonprofit organizations also have objectives and they also have a mission and a vision. And so it's important for us to look at the mission and vision of communities and schools and decide, does that line up with my standards? Does that line up with my community? Do I believe what they believe? Because what they believe they teach to every staff member of their organization and the work that they do is their standards influences the work that they do. You can't help that. So if you're trained in a certain ideology or a certain doctrine or a certain position, you naturally are going to teach and communicate uh, and everything that you do comes out of that foundation. So I really want to talk about the foundation of communities and schools. And then you decide, do you want that in your district? Uh, and you have the power to choose that. Uh, and you have to fight for that. And sometimes we win, sometimes we don't. Um, but I, I want to give you the information so that you know what to do in your community. So let's start off with just talking about um, how communities and schools really reflects the whole school, whole community, whole child, um, I guess, organizational chart. That organizational chart is that they provide all those services, mental health, dentist, you know, health care of every kind, nutrition, food, uh, case management, uh, you know, all of these things. The CDC program wants children to go to school early, leave later. And this is why in the mind polluters, I call it the institutionalization of our children, because it almost looks like in this virtual school, what it looks like is its own city, its own community. Everything is there except for a dormitory. And that's what's really scary about it. If parents really are optional in this program. Now, when you look at their logo, you're going to see the child in the center and you're going to see all the community uh, organizations and influences on that child. And they equate the family along with everything else. So there's nothing special about family in this program. They don't see parents as the authority over their children or the stewards over the children. They just see it as another resource. And if that resource is lacking, then they're going to allow the case managers and all the other community members and organizations to then take over that child. Uh, and so that's what's really scary. And what communities and schools has done is that they've inserted themselves to be kind of like that middleman that provides access to that whole circle of community influences over the children. Um, but they don't necessarily um, involve the family. They say that they do, but the only family that they're interested in interacting with are those who align with their beliefs, which is very similar to Planned Parenthood as well. They say that they do parental involvement, but really the only parents that they work with are parents who believe in their same ideology and belief system when it comes to sexuality. And so it really leaves out a lot of other families. And so what is the reach of communities and schools? They're in 25 states, including D.C., um, they are in, let's see, 3,270 schools and community sites, and they have been, have served uh, up to 2022, 1.8 million children. Now, one of the things that they do when you're going through their data is they talk about, you know, oh, this many children were, you know, we, we've been able to increase the dropout rate of these children. And that sounds wonderful. But in my community in Fredericksburg, Texas, we have a 99 nine or I don't know, 98.9, let's say just 99% uh, uh, 
graduation rate. We don't have an issue with children not graduating from Fredericksburg High School. Um, but we are a Title I school and we're in a rural community. And so Communities and Schools wants to come to Fredericksburg. The administrators of Fredericksburg actually invited Communities and Schools to come. They almost contracted with us, but as parents, we we're able to ask some questions, which actually uh, got them a little scared. And so all of that was postponed. But one of the public comments from a grandmother in the community said, well, if CIS, Communities and Schools, is here to help us ensure that our children are graduating, we don't actually have that problem. Our children are graduating from high school. So why do we need communities and schools? So that made me think as well as, well, you know, they share all this data that all these kids are advancing to the next grade and all these kids are graduating because of their influence. How do we really know it's their influence? Because if they came to Fredericksburg and said the same thing, the truth is, is we've never had a problem with our kids moving on to the next grade or graduating. So that's interesting, isn't it? So I'd really like to see the data on that. So, so that gives you an idea of who Communities and Schools is. Now, when it comes to funding, and I'm going to have a separate podcast on this, that'll be really interesting. But I will say that Communities and Schools gets a large amount of money from the state education systems, as well as federal money from Biden. Uh, and we will talk a little bit about that. But in the state of Texas, and perhaps in your state, you might have laws against teaching critical race theory. And much of critical race theory is talking about uh, setting up our white children uh, to believe that they are always going to be oppressors, that they have this privilege that they're not aware of that really is oppressive to children of color. Uh, and it teaches children of color that they have always been oppressed and that they will always be oppressed. And it's something that they're going to have to overcome by making sure that white people uh, know that they are oppressive and that they are privileged. Uh, and so there's all this division. And so majority of the people in our country do not agree with critical race theory. We also don't agree with critical gender theory or critical sex theory. All of these basically are saying um, that let's say with critical sex theory is basically saying uh, heterosexuality is not normal, uh, but homosexuality or being on a spectrum of various of a sexual orientation is what's normal. And so then they'll use words like don't be heteronormative, uh, which is really basically saying heterosexuality is not normal. So stop acting like everyone is heterosexual. Uh, gender, critical gender theory is saying that gender is not really binary and that it, that's not normal. And that really what's normal is that anyone can express their gender however they want and that biology doesn't matter. That's what those critical theories do. They deconstruct truth and replace it with an ideology um, that really is always relative and it's always changing and it's always creating division. And so in Texas, we have a, a bill that was passed and it's against critical race theory. Uh, and basically it's stating that we're not allowed to teach anything um, that says that any race is inferior or superior to another, which includes saying uh, that all whites are part of a white supremacist group. 
to me, that's a very oppressive statement. That's especially for children, very hurtful to them. Uh, that's very mean to not just me, but it is to me, that is oppressive for me to go up to a white person and, or even to a child and convince them that something is wrong with them, that they can't change. Number one, nothing is wrong with them. And number two, there's no need for them to change. They're a child. Uh, and so with that, you know, they're not racist. They're not naturally racist. Is that's ridiculous? But this is creating division, and it's and it's really causing our white children to feel either angry or really bad about themselves. Uh, and so we have that law in our state. But what's really interesting is what in my research I'm finding that communities and schools teaches that very ideology of critical race theory. They call it diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, I want you guys to know that when it comes to critical race theory, critical sex theory, and critical gender theory, um, the, the terminology will always change because as we uh, start combating critical theories, then they change it to diversity, equity, inclusion. And I recently heard from a friend that the World Economic Forum is now calling it something else. <laughs> so once I get that information, I'll share that with you too. And so that's part of it is that there's never an absolute truth with these ideologies that are so harmful to our kids because they always change them up. So it keeps you on your toes and you don't know what you're combating anymore. And it's really like mental gymnastics. And so here we have this law in Texas that says you cannot teach critical race theory. You can't uh, teach that in schools. Um, and, and so, but then we have uh, that we see that the TEA, the Texas Education Agency, has a special relationship with communities and schools. Basically, communities and schools is actually in our laws, and they are now integrated into the TEA. Uh, when I say integrated, what I mean is that they are now part of the strategic plan for education. They're not employed by TEA, but they do receive a lot of money from the TEA. And what's interesting is because they're not employees of the Texas Education Agency, and they're not teachers, so they're not receiving W-2 income from the education agency. They are grantees. They are receiving money uh, and money that really, because it's written into law, I'm not really sure if they have to reapply or not. I think this is just money that they get, but they're not considered employees. They're not considered part of... Um, they're not like a superintendent, you know, where they where they have to follow our teachers, our superintendents all have to follow follow our education laws, Texas Education Code for 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 laws, right? And so, what the interesting relationship CIS has with them is that they don't have to follow those laws because they're not actually employees of the district. So where we have laws that give parents certain protections, where we have a grievance process uh, within the district, as well as with the TEA, communities and schools wouldn't fall under those, like we wouldn't have those same protections with them. Uh, if we had a problem with, with communities and schools, submitting a grievance wouldn't make a difference because they're not employees of the district. Uh, complaining to the TEA won't make a difference because they're not actually employed by the TEA. So by having this third party vendor in our school system that is providing case management, intensive group counseling school wide, parents have zero protections if something happens to their child.
So I found that really interesting. Uh, and all that information about how much money they're receiving from the Texas Education Agency is on the Texas uh, Education Agency website. So you can see that for yourself. They're receiving both state and federal money. And you can go to your own state's website to find out if communities and schools is now part of your education agency. Are they written into your laws and are they receiving money? Very important thing to look into. And so when um, it's kind of a long story of how communities and schools came into our school in our district um, by, you know, but basically our superintendent um, put it on the board agenda to discuss a contract with communities and schools. And so none of us knew, nobody knew, there was no announcement given that this third party vendor was about to come into our school to provide dropout prevention program, to provide intensive case management, to provide intensive group counseling and a multi-tiered system of support school-wide. Nobody knew about it. None of the parents, no flyers, no forum, nothing. But because we're following the board meetings, we downloaded the agenda, we downloaded the attachments, and we read the contract. And we asked questions during public comment at our board meeting. And that's all we did. We asked questions. So I asked questions. Hey, I see that in the contract, there's an indemnification. I'm sorry, I can't say that word. <laughs> and basically, um, in the contract, it, sta it states that communities and schools and, for and the school district would not be held liable if anything happened to a child under their care. Hmm. Where are the parent protections and student protections? It also said that because communities and schools is, are not employees of the district, that any uh, all of their student files that they have on the students in our district would not be owned by the district. They would be owned by communities and schools. But that would pose a problem because right now in Texas, the Texas Education Code gives parents the right to access, to ask and access the files of their children in the school. So if a parent decided that they wanted to see their child's file that is being kept by communities and schools, they actually wouldn't have to give the parents that file because they're not an employee of the district and they're not under the Texas Education Code. So they could decide to share that or not. And so these are the kind of questions that I was asking. Um, another question I asked as well, it's our superintendent said that communities in school is just here for to provide food and possibly shelter, uh, maybe clothing for kids who are struggling with poverty. But then I said, if that were if that's true, then why is it that the contract is stating that they're going to provide a multi-tiered system of support with aggressive, uh, group counseling and individual counseling of students. That's not food. That's mental health services. So which is it? Um, so what's interesting is a lot of people, you know, a lot of parents and concerned citizens asked questions. Um, we downloaded information off of their website that showed that they actually teach diversity, equity, and inclusion and have literal trainings on how to create activists of students. Um, and that was all labeled as misinformation, even though we pulled it off of the communities and schools website. Isn't that weird? Um, so it wasn't misinformation. 
it really is what they believe in. It, it is the tools that they're using. So for them to say that was really unusual. Sorry, guys, my computer was shutting down there. So these are the kind of things that made parents even more curious about communities and schools. And so even though our local paper and the administrators of our school all called us, um, it basically said we're troublemakers, that we're spreading misinformation. Even communities and schools said that it was really sad that we were giving out bad information. They acknowledged that the resources that I gave to the school board as examples that they were teaching our children to become social change activists, that it did come from their national organization. They acknowledged that, but they said that they don't teach that because they're the local affiliate and that's not what they believe in and that they would not teach that. Now, why would we believe that? Why would we believe that as employees of the national organization, an organization that, um, you know, you can't be an affiliate unless you're part of their organization. These are not separate. They might have a separate office, but they're still communities and schools. Why would we believe that they do not believe the very same doctrine, position, and standards that their national organization believes in? That doesn't make any sense. But they wanted us to believe that they were innocent and that parents and community members were lying and that we are providing misinformation. And so we decided to dig into it further. And so all the resources that I'm talking about in this podcast, I will have on my website and in the show notes, you can have all the links so that you can see publicly on their public website, all of their um, training materials, all of their belief systems, all of just really everything that they have. It's right there. They're open about it and they're pretty proud about it as well. So let's start with their community matter matters, which is called diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in this particular one, um, they talk about systemic inequity in U.S. public education, um, that they see the issue with unflinching honesty, and they want to help others to see it as well. And uh, they have also that they are grounded in equity. They believe that they have uh, their belief and their commitment is to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'll go in a little more into what they mean by that. Um, another page here talks about, um, where is it? The education, the U.S. public education system was not built for equity. It's doing what it was built to do. So they believe that our education system is systemically racist. They say that deconstructing white supremacy is not solely the responsibility of people of color and people with other historically marginalized identities. It's everyone's work. And they describe systemic as relating to a system, especially as opposed to a particular part. Um, and they use the word and they, you know, these are their words, deconstructing white supremacy. And they're talking about doing that in our public school system, which means that they believe that that white people are systemically and inherently racist and oppressive. Um. You know, so it goes on and on on how they're going to combat that in the schools, uh, basically letting both teachers and children know about this uh, problem with the white population and that 
people of color are definitely oppressed. Um, the CIS national office and affiliates collaborating to advance DEI. So here we see again proof that what the national organization sets as the president, they are expecting every affiliate to collaborate with that. So they're saying that both the national office and the affiliates are collaborating to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion. And once again, go to the show notes and look at their resources because you will see clearly what they believe diversity, equity, and inclusion is. And so I will go into every detail of this particular one. It, it talks about uh, the Central Texas uh, communities and schools. It talks about Gulf South communities and schools. It shows some of the books that they are sharing with the children. Bodies are cool, anti-racist baby. Um, and it goes on and on. But let me go into some of the resources. Like, for example, some of the trainings that they provided their affiliates is nonverbal microaggressions. And they basically say that people of color are generally um, are not. Uh, basically, they're saying an example of a microaggression is you are a credit to your race. And what that really is, is white people saying that people of color are not as intelligent as white people. Uh, or it even means that Asians are more intelligent and good at math and sciences. This is a training that the national organization provided to their affiliates, including the Texas affiliates on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Another um, example of microaggression is a white man or woman clutching their purse or checking their wallet as a black or Latin X person approaches or passes. Latin X is in reference to this movement in, in I guess, I don't know why we're not seeing it in all people of color, but Latinx is actually saying that there is no Latina or Latino, um, but that there, there is, you know, they're not going to, uh, they're not going to accept the gender binary. So instead of saying Latina or Latino, they say Latinx. So that's what that means. Um, and the implicit bias is that a person of color is presumed to be dangerous, criminal, or deviant on the basis of their race. So once again, we're seeing that these microaggressions are all aimed at what bad things white people are doing and how it's hurting the very vulnerable, uh, victimized person of color. I'm a woman of color and my parents did teach me about racism and prejudice, but they taught me my identity as being an intelligent, strong individual, part of my family. And they let me know that not all people would mistreat me but that if anyone mistreated me, and I will say that I actually had a lot of people of my own culture look down at me because I'm brown versus being lighter um, than, than even white people, okay? <laughs> so, but they always taught me how to handle those things in a constructive way and to always know my position and my identity. And so I was given those tools without believing that white people are bad, um, or that I'm an eternal victim. If anything, my parents empowered me. And that's what children need. They need empowerment from their parents and not this kind of ideology being taught in the school where they're basically uh, pitting these children against one another and making some children feel like they're less than to lift up, uh, supposedly lift up another. And I'll tell you what, you cannot lift up a child of color by saying, look down at that white person. 
Uh, that is not going to lift any child up. Uh, I believe that these microaggressions and teaching diversity, equity, inclusion comes from anger and it comes from bitterness and it's not going to bring any kind of healing whatsoever. And I am just shocked that an organization as well-funded and as well-established as communities and schools is teaching diversity, equity, inclusion, and teaching its staff and children that this is the kind of ideology that they should be following. It is incredibly hurtful, and it's not going to bring any kind of uh, healing whatsoever. Now, how committed are they to teaching DEI? Well, and I'm going to give you the link to this. Uh, they had a DEI summit. Communities and schools had a DEI summit in November of 2022. And you can go to their website, scroll all the way to the bottom where you will see diversity, equity, and inclusion. You can click on that and then scroll through that webpage and you'll see resources from the summit. And you can see every resource that they have, including that microaggressions uh, training that I just showed you. But another thing that they have on there is an assessment. And this assessment, and this is all public information. This assessment, and I'll provide links to all of this, is for their staff, their board, their volunteers, okay? And what this assessment is, is that because communities and schools has committed themselves to being a diversity, equity, and inclusive, uh, I guess, teacher, uh, and leader in this country, they want to make sure that all of their staff are truly committed to this. And they also want to make sure that when those staff members are site coordinators, which means that they spend full time, uh, their full time work is to be on your school campus. This assessment demonstrates that their expectation, the national organization's expectation, is that those employees of CIS will challenge every student, every administrator, um, every family to accept and affirm diversity, equity, and inclusion. And as you go through their resources, and I'll go through some of these in the next few podcasts, um, that also means that they're going to learn about uh, you know, the accepting and affirming everything that comes with LGBTQ, race, um, gender, and it goes on and on and on. And I'll share those resources with you guys so that you can see them for yourselves. And then you decide, is that what you want your children to learn? And is that, and if, and if people, the adults that are caring for your children are trained in that ideology, are those the kind of adults that you want around your children? Is that the community that you want influencing your children? Is that the village that you want raising up your children and helping them to graduate and to navigate this world? Are those the values that represent your family? I got a feeling the answer is absolutely not. Their values do not represent my family. Now in this country, do we have the freedom to believe what we want? Absolutely, but not on my taxpayer money and not on yours. And so communities and schools, I believe needs to lose its funding and they can continue to function on their private funds and families who want their children to learn that kind of ideology can go to their affiliates and have them teach them that ideology. But they have no place in government run schools. But right now they are. And according to the book that the, it's in a revised book uh, written by their by their founder, Bill Milliken, um, there is a chapter in here that talks about institutionalizing 
communities and schools and their model of education, their model of wraparound services. And so they're, they've done this in West Virginia. Uh, they have a licensing program so that uh, instead of having communities and schools in every school, the communities and schools will then teach that district or that educate, state education department their model. And then that education department uh, or education agency can, can basically implement the communities and schools diversity, equity, and inclusion model statewide in every school and they don't ever have to be in the schools at all. So they're basically saying that they want to institutionalize diversity, equity, and inclusion in every school in this country. And they are being heavily funded by our government and by private businesses and philanthropy um, to do just that. And those are your children, not theirs. And so guys, I want you to come back to the next podcast where we're going to take a deep dive into uh, some of these resources so that you can see them for yourself and we can kind of have a, um, you know, you can send me questions later and we can have a discussion on it. Maybe we'll do some lives. We'll, we'll figure that out, but I want you to really get into it. I'm also going to invite a guest over who does amazing work in researching funding, uh, connecting the dots. Who are the businesses and organizations that are funding this kind of work? Who are the organizations and businesses that are funding uh, communities and schools? We know who some of them are already, but we're going to take a deeper dive into that. And so this special guest will be on my next podcast to talk about the funders um, and where this is going in the future. So guys, I know that you probably have a million questions, so feel free to um, shoot those questions over to me. Visit me at monicacline.com. You can shoot me an email and wait for the next podcast because there's a lot more information coming.